This is History West Midlands. Between 1850 and 1900, Birmingham was completely transformed in its physical environment, its educational opportunity and in its culture. Not only was it thought to be the best governed town in the country, but it was also reputed to be the most artistic town in England. It was quite a change from the unplanned, unsanitary model of the first decades of the 19th century. This revolution was affected not by national government, but by the efforts of Birmingham people, seized by a philanthropic desire to better the lives of all citizens. The urge to improve and do good was articulated and propagated in the civic gospel, a creed unique to Birmingham, whose most famous embodiment was Joseph Chamberlain. During his time as Mayor of Birmingham from 1873 to 1876, the town was, in his own words, parked, paved, assized, marketed, gas and watered and improved. His towering personality on the council drove and directed these reforms to the urban environment. But there is much more to Birmingham's civic renewal than this. Asa Briggs, in his classic History of Birmingham, written 60 years ago, understood it, writing that the civic revolution was not the work of one man, but of whole groups of men. And those men, about some of whom I will talk today, looked to one prophet, a true inspiration, who has been largely forgotten, where once he was one of the most famous Birmingham figures in the country. His statue has long since been removed from Chamberlain Square. And I am talking of George Dawson, Minister at the Church of the Saviour. He was a legendary talker, and his sermons or lectures on Sundays, his conversation at free library committee meetings, at the Arts Club, his lectures at the Midland Institute, at our Shakespeare Club, where members like him and his friends were afforded the opportunity to interchange sentiments and promote the well-being and good government of the town. These influenced a generation of Birmingham's great and good. For Dawson was a compelling and charismatic figure who preached an heroic mission, that of his own invention, the civic gospel. This mission was directed to civilising the town dweller in an age of urban rootlessness and faithlessness. Great towns or cities were, he thought, societies established by divine will for common life and common purpose. And he thought it was the responsibility of the many businessmen and the educated elite in his congregation to act, to lead, to bring about a better life for all. The Chamberlains and Kenricks, the Harrises and others who helped the city's physical transformation I have earlier described, heeded the lesson. The results are duly noted in all the standard histories of Birmingham. What is much less well explored is that other dimension of the civic gospel on which Dawson was so insistent. For as he said, When we have done all we can for the citizen's health, we have not ministered to all his wants. For mind and spirit have needs of their own and must be satisfied. So the city which is a city must have its parks as well as its prisons, its art gallery as well as its asylum, its books and its libraries as well as its baths and washhouses, its schools as well as its sewers. He went on to argue that, 
One of the highest offices of civilization is to determine how to give masterpieces of art and literature to the whole people. In practice, this meant that Dawson campaigned to establish free libraries in Birmingham and an institute which would cater to mechanics and technicians, as well as to ordinary citizens hungry to learn more about literature and the arts. Furthermore, with his old friend Sam Timmins, he envisioned, then brought about, a Shakespeare Memorial Library to coincide with the 300th anniversary of the playwright's death. He wanted to bring Shakespeare to Birmingham's working people in the belief that Shakespeare taught the religion of human nature and that all could be nourished by his insight into the human condition. But if Dawson has been too long overlooked, how much more is this the case with a whole team of disciples who were powerfully influenced by him and who then dedicated themselves to cultivating the spiritual and intellectual lives of Birmingham's citizens. These now-forgotten public servants certainly impressed contemporaries like the American journalist Julian Ralph, who wrote admiringly of Citizens, so numerous in Birmingham, so rare elsewhere, who esteem it a privilege to deny themselves comfort and rest in the interest of the community and who work year in, year out, without pay, for the town's well-being. They belonged to, and attended, weekly or fortnightly municipal committees for anything between 20, and in William Kenrick's case, 50, years on end. They usually contributed financially to the town's good causes. And because they had much in common, and worked frequently on the same committees, they became close friends and allies in this mission to enculturate Birmingham. What was it that they had in common? Firstly, nearly all were nonconformists, and most attended Dawson's Church of the Saviour, or the Unitarian Church of the Messiah. They shared both a dissatisfaction with an Anglican establishment status quo and an urge to reform living conditions in this world. All were liberals, believing, in the words of the minister Henry Crosskey, liberal policy was a policy of civilization. It meant the enjoyment by the great mass of people of the blessing of a beautiful and civilized life. Many, though not all, were manufacturers like Sam Timmins, William Kenrick, Frank Martineau, or Joseph Chamberlain himself, and all without exception dedicated themselves to educational reform in its various forms. For some, this meant the education of children. The attendance list for the first meeting of the National Education League, founded in Birmingham in 1869 to campaign for free, compulsory elementary education for all, is a roll-call of civic gospelers, many now forgotten. Yes, here are George Dawson and Joseph Chamberlain, but quite as important are the minister, Robert Dale, and William Harris, Jesse Collings, William Kenrick, John Thackray Bunce, Frank Martineau, and John Jaffray. For others, there was just as great an imperative to educate adults. Several of our civic gospelers had first come to realise the profound ignorance of many of their employees through teaching in Sunday and adult night schools. After the 1867 Reform Act enfranchised heads of households, there was an even greater urgency to educate these new voters. 
Arthur Ryland, respected solicitor and architect of Birmingham's incorporation, was the inspiration for the foundation of the Birmingham and Midland Institute in 1854. To diffuse and advance science, literature and the arts among all classes, an industrial department furnished artisans with a technical education, while the general department offered men and women lectures and classes on literature, the arts, music, and even health education. Charles Dickens so much believed in it that freely he gave his services with a first public reading of A Christmas Carol to raise funds, while in time he would become the Institute's president. Ryland established it. Under J. H. Chamberlain and R. F. Martineau, the Institute would, by 1900, become the country's leading such institution, with thousands of members and attendees at its soirees and lectures. Under its umbrella organisation, there sheltered a music department, an art school, and a school of design. In time, as they grew, they would take on independent lives of their own. The Institute also boasted a library and reading rooms, for, as George Dawson memorably articulated it in 1866, at the opening of Birmingham's reference library, A great library contains the diary of the human race, and may be regarded as the solemn chamber in which man may take counsel of all that had been wise and great and good and glorious among the men that have gone before him. Ryland, Dawson and Timmins, among others, had battled through the 1850s to persuade unimaginative town councillors to adopt government legislation permitting the establishment of a rate-aided library. In 1860, led by their new mayor, Arthur Ryland, the council at last agreed to build this reference library. By the end of the century, there were eight more lending libraries scattered across the town. The Town Council created a library committee to be responsible for these municipal institutions, and for 31 of the first 33 years the chairman was a member of Dawson's congregation. J.T. Mullins, the first librarian of the Central Reference Library, diligently compiled lists of borrowers' occupations, and it must have been gratifying to note the many engineers, goldsmiths, jewellers, engravers, printers, brass founders and other workmen using the facility. Here seemed proof that Dawson's mission was indeed touching the lives of many citizens, regardless of class. An additional refinement was the commitment in 1864 to provide a room in this central library to house that Shakespeare Memorial Library, for which devotees of the Bard, like Dawson and Timmins, of course, but also J. H. Chamberlain, William Harris and J. T. Bunce, had agitated. Dawson had wanted to bring culture and learning to all, everything to everybody, and that implied widening access to Warwickshire's own greatest literary figure. When seeking to cultivate things of the spirit and of the mind, Dawson was equally concerned to refine aesthetic appreciation. Like many of his circle, he sought to emulate the history of another industrial and commercial entity from an earlier era, Florence, in the Quattrocento. Its confidence, its ambition and its beauty distilled the spirit of the Renaissance, as the civic gospelers hoped that Birmingham would do for the Victorian age. Its architecture would inspire and impress the minds of the citizens. 
For Joseph Chamberlain, the monumental Renaissance Council House, built in the early 1870s to a design by Yeovil Thomason, was a statement of the value and importance of municipal institutions and local self-government to the whole community. But his namesake, John Henry Chamberlain, was much more significant in the aesthetic education of Birmingham's citizens. Profoundly influenced by first John Ruskin and then by George Dawson, who also revered Ruskin, J. H. Chamberlain learnt about the moral and practical value of Gothic in Ruskin's Stones of Venice. Gothic is the best architecture. It can fit most easily to all services, vulgar or noble. Undefined in its slope of roof, height of shaft, breadth or disposition of ground plan, it can shrink into a turret, expand into a hall, coil into a staircase or spring into a tower. Commissioned by fellow worshippers at Dawson's Church, J. H. Chamberlain became Birmingham's go-to architect from the mid-1860s up to his tragically early death in 1883. The Gothic towers of his 29 board schools became familiar landmarks reminding all onlookers of the municipal ambition to educate and improve. Like the Gothic municipal baths, pumping stations, police stations and the School of Art, replete with coloured and patterned brickwork and tiles, with gable, buttress and lancet windows, the schools embodied civic values. More than this, for J. H. Chamberlain, every new building was an opportunity to enrich and inform and transfigure the lives of all who saw it. His buildings were intended to be didactic. Art should enlarge human life, make it wider and brighter and better and give to men and women, even down to the very poorest, a greater pleasure in every hour they spent. His legacy was the beautification and improvement of the whole lived environment in Birmingham Centre. He was concerned, just as were Ruskin and the artist and designer William Morris, with craftsmanship. His buildings are colonised by acanthus, columbine, rose and vine carvings, illustrating imagination and skill. Chamberlain had brought Morris to Birmingham to advise on a new museum and art school, and it was in the town hall in 1880 that Morris made his famous remark, "'Have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful.'" The salient point was that mass production techniques in Birmingham's famed metalworking factories had diminished individual craft skills and led to dull utilitarian design. A number of our civic gospelers set out to address the issue. For William Aitkin, from Dawson's congregation, a designer himself at Hardman's decorative metalworking factory, the solution lay with design education by osmosis. So, in the 1840s and 50s, he organised exhibitions of international manufactured products in Aston Hall in Birmingham, inspiring visiting Prince Albert to employ him in organising the great exhibition. So, he took workmen to Paris to see how competition on the continent did it, while he also agitated to establish a design museum in Birmingham. Others of the Dawson Circle took up his cudgels after his early death in 1875. R. F. Martineau campaigned ultimately successfully 
for a technical school, and when it was built in 1895, it was the largest in the country. Martineau rejoiced in its science laboratories, lecture theatres, metal and wood workshops. Wage earners could expand their mental horizons by learning the truth and seeing the wonders and beauties of science. The school would train a better class of artisan and effect a brightening and widening of the lives of individual students. The idea of educating and elevating through osmosis by exposing citizens to beautiful art and artefacts was taken up by others who sought a first-class art gallery and museum for the city. J.T. Bunce, the influential editor of the Birmingham Post, regularly pointed out the great loss the town sustains in the absence of an adequate art collection. Eventually he got his municipal gallery. His advocacy won over the philanthropic Tangi brothers, who funded a new gallery and recruited another Dawson disciple, William Kenrick, chairman of the council's gas committee. He provided the space and municipal money for the museum in the gas department's new headquarters. The inscription over the museum's entrance, By the gains of industry we promote art, could not have been more apt. The museum was immediately hugely popular. Over one million visitors in the first year of operation after the Prince of Wales opened it in 1885. The serious intention was to elevate, inform and instruct Birmingham citizens, indeed, to develop insight and shape their taste. Under Bunce and Kenrick's influence, the gallery rapidly built up a nationally significant collection of pre-Raphaelite works. In 1889 they commissioned a native of Birmingham, Edward Burne-Jones, to paint the oft-reproduced Star of Bethlehem, a blaze of colour, and looking like a carol, he would say of it. The serious moral intent of pre-Raphaelite artists aligned very well with the Dawson Circle's earnest desire to make Birmingham's citizens thoughtful, refined and discriminating. That aspiration was also applied to student artists themselves. William Morris and Edward Burne-Jones had, from 1875, been recommending to their civic gospel of friends, like J. H. Chamberlain and William Kenrick, that Birmingham should establish a standalone school of art. Once again, the combination of Bunce and Tangy generated both the momentum and the funds for a substantial building. J. H. Chamberlain's last and greatest work on Edmund and Margaret streets. Under an inspirational head, Edward Taylor, the School of Art became the first municipal and the foremost provincial art school in England. Its students dominated national art prizes each year. It boasted more students than any other art school. It strongly supported the emerging careers of women artists like Kate and Myra Bunce, it pioneered the idea that artists should have the equipment to make a reality of their designs. It offered a wide range of experiences in casting and working with different materials. And so prominent was it that it regularly attracted household names like Holman Hunt, Walter Crane and Burne Jones to lecture and to teach. When the few living survivors of Dawson's circle, men like Frank Martineau, William Kenrick and William Harris looked back in 1900 
over Birmingham's trajectory across the previous decades, they could do so with understandable complacency. Thousands of Birmingham citizens now accessed the Institute and the many libraries. The awful hiatus of the Central Library's incineration in 1879, when much of the Shakespeare collection and thousands of other works had been burnt to a cinder, had been overcome, and the libraries and collections rebuilt. From a formless muddle, Birmingham's centre had greater distinction, with many fine buildings to inspire its citizens. They were now able to discriminate aesthetically through visiting the new museum and the art gallery, replete with artefacts and stimulating paintings. As much as Chamberlain's municipal socialism transformed Birmingham's environment, so the other civic gospelers who took up the challenge to feed the mind and spirit were just as important in making George Dawson's civic mission a reality. And the legacy of these men is still felt in the Birmingham of the 21st century. The Museum and Art Gallery, the Institute and the School of Art in all their Victorian glory are still extensively used by Birmingham citizens, as are Corporation Street and a number of the surviving board schools. And if the Central Library has metamorphosed through several physical incarnations, the institution still lies at the centre of Birmingham, a symbol of its founder's passion for information and for learning. More importantly, that sense of pride in Birmingham as a cultural and educational hub remains to the present day. Nevertheless, the sheer extent of philanthropic self-sacrifice, the dedication and the vision of these 19th century civic gospelers remain unrivalled today. Perhaps the erosion of local responsibility, as central government steadily accreted more power across the last century, and the vertiginous decline of religious belief, has reduced the scope for the sort of initiatives George Dawson and his disciples brought about. <laughs>